Good morning, church. I love my wife. Y'all thought I was going to say you. Huh? I love my wife. My wife loves me. I think we have a really good marriage, but it's not perfect. I love my kids. I'm pretty sure they love me. I think we've got a great relationship, but it's not perfect. My parents are here this morning. I love them. I'm convinced they love me. We have a great relationship, but it's not perfect. I love y'all. I'm pretty sure y'all love me. I think we've got a great relationship, but it's not perfect. And that's true of all of our relationships, isn't it? I, I used to work with a guy in the church, and he used to say that church work would be easy if it wasn't for all the people, right? <laughs> church work would be easy if it wasn't for all the people. I mean, that's the way it is with everything, isn't it? Your job, your, your home life, your neighborhood, our country, our world, it's all the people that are the problem, right? And even in the very best relationships, there is still something broken. There is still something that's not perfect. The last few weeks, we've been going through this series, walking through the story of the Garden of Eden. Last week, we talked about how in the fall and when humanity, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was lost was innocence. We talked about the loss of innocence. We talked about entering into a world of shame and guilt and sin. But, but we've also talked about the fact that it's not just, it's not just innocence that was lost in the garden. It was life and abundance and ministry and being in the presence of God. But this morning, I want to focus on the fact that there are also relational effects. There are also relational effects that humanity has been wrestling with ever since the garden. And that this is the story that helps us to understand and put in perspective and build a framework for how we understand what's wrong, what's wrong in every single relationship that we have. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. And of course, as we said last week, this is, this is right after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and they covered themselves with fig leaves. It says in verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It's obvious already, isn't it? It's obvious that something has happened. Something has changed. Something has changed their perspective. Something has changed their knowledge. Something has changed their experience. 
And of course, God asks some questions here, and it's not because when God asks questions, it's not because he needs to hear the answers, it's because somebody needs to speak the answers. Somebody needs to speak this out loud. And of course, God asked, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? It's obvious that something has changed because before the fruit, they only knew good. They knew good, didn't they? They knew good. They experienced good. They saw good. They tasted good. They had good. They knew good. But now they not only know good, now they know bad. They know evil. Now they know shame, and now they know guilt, and now they know fear, and now they know embarrassment. Now they know these things, not just intellectually, but experientially. They know it by experience. They thought that they needed this knowledge, this knowledge of good and bad, in order to be whole, in order to be complete. They didn't trust God that he had already given them as much completeness as they needed. God made them in his own image, in his own likeness, to be his image bearers. And so this knowledge that they gained, not just intellectually, but experientially, it didn't complete them, it broke them in more ways than one. And the man said, in answer to God's question, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do we see, this is, this is verbally the same thing as it seems like they were doing with the fig leaves, isn't it? trying to cover their shame. See, this is the heart of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, to try to present ourselves as acceptable, to try to present ourselves as righteous. We might say, yeah, I, I messed up. They admitted I messed up. I did eat of the tree that you told me not to eat from, but it's not really my fault. I have a really good excuse. And Adam's excuse is what? that woman, and not only that woman, not only is it her fault, but God, I hate to remind you, but you're the one who gave her to me. This is how self-righteousness works, isn't it? And Eve says, I, I, I did, but I have a good excuse too, and the serpent, he deceived me, and that's why I ate. This is how self-righteousness righteousness works in their life and in ours. We make excuses, don't we? And we say, I'm ashamed, and I'm guilty, and I shouldn't have, and I'm embarrassed, and I know I shouldn't have done that, but at least I'm not that guy. And I'm, at least I'm not her, and she's way worse than I am, and he's way worse than I am, and look at all of those people. And before we know it, we're like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who stands up and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like all of these other people. This is self-righteousness. We blame, we excuse we throw someone else under the bus. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed 
are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I think it's interesting, and this never really occurred to me until this week as I was looking through this passage, that God curses the serpent, and later, next week, we'll talk about the fact that he curses the ground, but it's interesting, he doesn't curse the woman or the man. He curses the serpent, and he curses the ground, but he doesn't curse the woman or the man. And we talked about last week how there has to be so much symbolism in this serpent, doesn't there? That this isn't just a, a snake, that this is symbolic of or a personification of or materialization of Satan, the devil, evil. This, this is telling us that this is going to be the struggle going forward. That there is going to be this ongoing struggle, not just between Adam and Eve and the serpent, but between Adam and Eve and the serpent and their offspring, or specifically her offspring, which, by the way, is a little hint at the mercy and the grace of God, right? Because up to this point, we thought, y'all dead, right? I mean, y'all dead. Like, this is it. Like, you're going to die right here on the spot, but yet God gives them hope that they're going to have offspring, that Eve is going to have offspring. But there's going to be enmity. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be conflict between the children or the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. And this is going to be an ongoing conflict and this idea about the seed and the promise about the seed, we're going to see this throughout the offspring or the seed. We're going to see this promise throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament that the offspring or the seed will bring blessing, right? The seed of Abraham will be a blessing to all nations of mankind. And we see this promise carried throughout Abraham's line that there is going to be an offspring, that's going to bless all nations of mankind. And I believe that this is the first hint of the gospel that God says, God says that this serpent, Satan, the devil that we find out later this is symbolic of, is going to bruise or wound the woman's offspring's heel and he is going to bruise or wound Satan's head, right? Which one is a more devastating blow, right? The heel or the head? The head. And her offspring is going to be wounded by the serpent, but he is going to crush the serpent. Do we see even right here as God is explaining the consequences and what's going to happen because they didn't listen, because they didn't trust, because they didn't obey, there's going to be consequences, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be enmity, there's going to be war, but there is going to be a victory. And God is going to make sure that his plan is not subverted. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
So much packed into that one verse, right? So much packed into that one verse. The, the word that keeps coming to my mind as I read through these consequences of sin is the word frustrated. Frustrated. Because there's still a blessing, isn't there? I mean, there's a huge blessing. Because they're not going to die immediately. They're going to have offspring. He says, you're going to bear children. That's good news, isn't it? That's a blessing. That's wonderful. That's good. But the blessing is going to be frustrated because of sin. And all throughout this text, the blessings are going to be frustrated because of sin. They're not going to work just right. They're not going to be what they were supposed to be. They're not going to experience what you used to experience. It's not going to be what it used to be or what it should be or what it could be or what it was. The blessings will still be there, but there is a frustration to those blessings. You're going to continue to bring forth children, but there's going to be pain, and pain is going to frustrate these blessings. And then he says this about the relationship between the husband and wife. Again, there's a blessing, the relationship between the husband and wife, but that blessing is frustrated, isn't it? What began, what began in beautiful harmony and unity, do you remember when Adam first saw Eve? And he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's me and I'm her and we're one and unity and harmony and perfect togetherness and now God says now now you're going to have competing interests now your desire is going to be contrary to your husband and he's going to rule over you and by the way I I don't think that this is prescriptive I think it's descriptive I, I don't think he's telling husbands rule over your wives we talked about last week I, I think that that sort of leadership, godly leadership, was built into the created order of things. We talked about that a couple of times in the last few weeks. So he's not telling Adam to rule over her, but he's saying the harmony that you had, the unity that you had, the fact that you both were pulling in the same direction and going in the same direction, now it's frustrated because of sin. This is what sin does, isn't it? Sin frustrates the blessings. And you're still going to have the blessing of relationship, but it's going to be frustrated because now you're going to have competing interests with one another. And by the way, I don't think that this is just descriptive of the relationship between men and women or husbands and wives. I think this is descriptive of every relationship because the the way the Bible builds this framework is that all of us, all of us, are descended from Adam and Eve. This is all of our story. We are all their children. And in the next chapter, we'll see this play out with Cain and Abel, right? This conflict, this competing interest, this blessing of siblings. That's wonderful, isn't it? Siblings, brothers. But then animosity and jealousy and bitterness and murder. And then as the descendants grow and populate the world, we see the fact that relationships that are supposed to be a blessing are frustrated by sin. 
and people hate each other and people hurt each other and people take advantage of each other and people oppress each other and people enslave each other and there's violence and there's hatred and there's animosity and there's ambition. And this affects every relationship we have, doesn't it? Because we're all descended from this broken relationship. From this relationship that now isn't what it used to be. It used to be full of harmony and unity and perfect togetherness. And now your desires are contrary to his and he's ruling over you. And now you're, you're pulling in two different directions. Tug of war, that, that might be a good metaphor, right? You remember what it's like to play tug of war. And now every relationship, instead of pulling in the same direction, hmm, even, even when you're trying to, even when you're trying to all pull in the same direction, even when you've got a, a lot of stuff in common, mm, there's still going to be a little bit of tension and frustration. And then there's going to be a lot of people that you don't have a lot in common with. And it's going to be even harder. It's going to be even harder to pull in the same direction. And so now we see this, don't we? We see this brokenness. We see this frustration in every relationship, not only in marriage and with children and family, but in tribes and nations and ethnicities, and we see this conflict and tension and pulling in multiple directions. This was never the way it was supposed to be. Because of our flesh, every relationship we have is somewhat corrupted. But as we've been saying through this whole series, the, the good news of this series, the good news of this series, the good news of the Bible, the, the Bible starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation, and the picture we get is that what was lost in Eden is found in whom? In Jesus, in Christ, right? What is lost in Eden is found in Jesus. And that's true of our innocence. That's true of life and abundance and ministry and the presence of God. And it's true in relationships. Why do we think that most of the New Testament, I would argue that most of the New Testament deals with this, these relationships between people and how the Spirit of God Wisdom from above is the only thing that can fix this. Whether it's your marriage relationship or your relationship with your kids or your parents or your neighbors, whether it's relationships with people that share your nationality or share your ethnicity or people who don't, people who look like you and think like you and talk like you or people who don't look like you and think like you and talk like you, Jesus wants to heal all of these broken relationships through the Spirit. Look at what James says, the brother of Jesus. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. You see, this is, this is the problem in all of our relationships. In all of our relationships, it's selfish ambition. It's bitter jealousy. In all of our relationships, it's pulling in different directions. 
It's the brokenness that's in our flesh. It's the corruption that's in our flesh. That because of the flesh, every relationship we have is somewhat corrupted. He says in verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Write that on our hearts. Write that on our hearts, church. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Do we see how it is? In, in big degrees and small ones, where we're all saying, it's me, I, I gotta have this, I need this, this is for me, I, I wanna be number one, I wanna have this thing, I wanna have this experience, I wanna have this applause, I wanna have this whatever. Selfishly and ambitiously chasing my own. Got to look out for number one. Got to look out for me. If I don't, who will? And all pulling in different directions. He, he says in verse 17, though, but the wisdom from above, this is what we need. The wisdom we don't have in and of ourselves. The wisdom that doesn't dwell in our flesh. This wisdom isn't from inside. You can't look deep into your heart and find this wisdom. This wisdom doesn't exist in your heart. This wisdom is from above. This wisdom comes from the Spirit. And he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives. We become followers of Jesus. We, we die to the old humanity. And we say, I want to be resurrected a new kind of human. I want to be a different kind of human with a new Adam, a new firstborn. Teach me how to be human, Jesus. May your Spirit teach me how to be really, truly human. Fix in our relationships, what the fall has broken, what the fall has frustrated. Help us to be one. Teach me how to be peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. See, our, our fleshly nature isn't like this at all, is it? It says, I'm right, you're wrong, you can't convince me otherwise, right? I'm not open to reason. I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy, I'm going to stop you from doing... That's the flesh. The flesh is constantly in conflict with each other. The flesh is constantly pushing. The flesh is constantly pulling in different directions. But the Spirit of God is bringing us together. Bringing us together in our in our marriages, bringing us together with our children, bringing us together with our parents, bringing us together with our siblings, bringing us together with people of different nations and tribes and languages, bringing us together in Jesus, making us peacemakers. That's what followers of Jesus have become, is peacemakers. 
We see the same thing all throughout Paul's writings in Galatians 5, but let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you see how Jesus is the antidote to the consequences of sin? How when when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, when sin came into the world, and God says, now, now you went from bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh to now your desire is contrary to his, and he's ruling over you, and you're pulling in two different directions. And now Paul is saying in Christ, not just husbands and wives, not just parents and children, but all y'all, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if Jesus has done anything for you, if you have any participation in the Spirit, if you've been changed at all, if you've been transformed at all, if you're beginning to be sanctified in the Spirit of God, then have the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. You see, this is the point. This is the point of the gospel is reconciliation. Yes, between us and God, but it doesn't stop there. We can't just say, oh yeah, God, Jesus put me in a right relationship with God. Yes, and Jesus wants to put you in a right relationship with everybody else. With everybody else. So far as it depends on you, he wants to transform you to reverse the consequences of sin in every relationship you have. To help you to be at one with each other. And so he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. How much can we do from selfish ambition or conceit? Nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what Paul will say, this is the mind of Christ. In Galatians 5, he'll say, this is what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. When you walk in the Spirit, the fruit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. He's trying to make us one. He's trying to fix what is broken not just between us and God, but between us and everybody else. Everybody else. The problem is here. The problem is in my heart. The problem is in my mind. And the fix, the repair, is through the Spirit. Every relationship that we have is frustrated by competing interests of the flesh. So the answer is not the flesh. The answer is the Spirit. Relationships tend, relationships tend to become less frustrated the more we walk by the Spirit. And I say they tend to become less frustrated because every relationship has more than one person in it, right? And, and, and you can't determine whether or not somebody else is walking by the Spirit. And flesh will always be a factor in every relationship. 
this side of the resurrection. This side of the resurrection, flesh will always be a factor in every relationship, which means every relationship will continue to be somewhat frustrated. But relationships tend to be less frustrated the more we walk by the Spirit. Relationships tend to be less frustrated the more we walk by the Spirit. So we have to walk by the Spirit. And and when we walk by the Spirit in our marriage and our relationship with our kids and our relationship with our neighbors, when we walk in the Spirit in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and even with our enemies, these are the results. By the Spirit, we let go of our pursuit of things like applause and comfort and superiority vindication and revenge. Isn't this what we find throughout the New Testament? Isn't this what Jesus says? This is what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. And imagine, imagine how if through the Spirit and by the Spirit we let go of these pursuits. I don't have to be applauded. I don't have to be vindicated. I don't have to be appreciated. I don't have to be comfortable. I don't have to be liked. I don't have to have every enjoyment. I don't have to have every pleasure. Imagine what would begin to happen in our relationships. By the Spirit, we consider others to be more significant than ourselves. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2, isn't it? Consider others to be not as significant as you. For some of us, that would be a real challenge, just to consider everybody else to be our equals. He goes beyond that. And say, consider others to be more significant than yourselves. This is what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. By the Spirit, we consider the interests of others and not just our own interests. By the Spirit, we love our neighbors as ourselves. We could go on and on, couldn't we? By the Spirit, we love our enemies, don't we? By the Spirit, we turn the other cheek. By the Spirit, we go the extra mile. This is what the Spirit wants to do in our lives and transform our relationships. But so often, we're not participating. So often, we're not participating. We're quenching the work of the Spirit. So often, we're walking by the flesh and not by the Spirit. So often we're continuing to pursue applause and we're continuing to pursue comfort and we're continuing to pursue vindication and we're continuing to pursue revenge and we're continuing to pursue these fleshly pursuits. And we will never be as the church what Jesus wants us to be until we determine I will make it my aim every day that I draw breath, every step that I take to walk by the Spirit of God, to recognize these relationships we have have been broken by the flesh because we've tried to fix them ourselves and do them ourselves and figure it out ourselves and try to live by our own strength and our own wisdom, trying to look inside and try to figure out the right path and follow our own heart. And God says, that's what got you into this trouble in the first place, following your own heart following your own thoughts, leaning on yourself. It's not wisdom from inside. It's wisdom from above. It's the Spirit who transforms us to live this new kind of life. It begins at baptism. 
And so if there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to be baptized into Jesus and let the Spirit of God go to work in your life, make that decision this morning. But it doesn't end there, does it? The Spirit has a lot of work to do in all of us, and none of us have arrived, and all of us are still struggling against the the flesh, struggling to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And we need Jesus, and we need the Spirit, and we need each other. So if we could help you, encourage you, pray for you, the shepherds would love to meet with you after service in the prayer room, or we could pray for you right now as together we stand and sing this song.